continuing in our Ecclesiastes series, we find ourselves in chapter 3, moving right along in the book. The passage we consider this morning hosts one of the most well-known and oft-quoted sayings in the book of Ecclesiastes. To everything there is a season. It is a statement made popular by its profundity, by the degree to which it is indeed profound. We can all relate to and often find comfort in the fact that life confronts us in seasons. It gives us hope in times of trouble that the season will one day end. It gives us perspective in times of rest that it may not always be this way. And today we consider these concepts as we read the wisdom of Solomon. Remember our context, the context within which Solomon is writing this, which is, by the way, context essential to studying God's Word. We dare not divorce what we are reading from the context in which we are reading it. Solomon is testing life. In his own tests, he has come to the conclusion that true enjoyment and happiness, uh, what we call lasting satisfaction, if it is ever to be within the reach of a man, is only in reach when he recognizes life as a gift from God and when he aligns himself with God's designs and purposes in that life. When he is subservient to God's broader plan. Now the wicked, meanwhile, are left grasping desperately at the emptiness of this world's goods. Going from temporary happiness to temporary happiness to temporary happiness, seeking to quench their thirst outside of that which the only thing that can. They're seeking in their accumulation a satisfaction that simply cannot be found apart from its divine source. But then what is God's broader plan? If we're to live this life submitted to God's plan, we need to consider it very carefully. And this week we'll begin an exploration of God's way. God's plan in its broadest terms. And then we'll consider presumed problems. So this week we're going to see that God has a plan. An assertion of God's plan. Of the times and seasons of life. Of how life, though it goes up and down, and though we have good times and bad, is all subservient to the purposes of God. And then beginning next week, we're going, well, not next week because we have missionary coming. Beginning the week after that, we're going to begin to challenge God's purposes through the various struggles of life. Solomon's going to say, can God really be sovereign when this happens? Can God be sovereign in the midst of evil? Can God be sovereign in the midst of death? Can God be sovereign in the midst of corruption? Can God be sovereign in the midst of fill in the blank? How can a loving God Fill in the blank. And we'll see, as Solomon considers each one, he'll come to that conclusion that, yes, indeed, God is still in control. And this master plan is the key to lasting satisfaction, to the true life. And while this true life is a mystery to the natural man, it is not meant to be a mystery. It is, if we might call it this way, it's hidden in plain sight, contained in the Word of God. Lasting satisfaction, a true life, is not something to be developed, it is something to be obeyed. It's not, the key to a true life is not intelligence, it's not money, it's not power, it's submission. 
The man who finds the most success, the man who experiences that true life, that full life, that life of lasting satisfaction, what we might call life best lived, is the man who learns to identify God's way, God's plan, God's order, God's expectations to set his will aside and to submit his will to that plan. The wise man is the obedient man. The wise man is the submissive man. The wise man is the man who understands his role, understands his limitations, and understands that God has none. In our culture, we have an idiom. That idiom is, it's not what you know, it's who you know. In a sense, this is true. The most wonderful thing about the plan of God is that you don't need to be physically and mentally gifted to find it. In fact, often the men that are most successful at finding life in its fullest degree, finding that lasting satisfaction, are those who are not encumbered by the thoughts of their own superiority and their own ability. By the ones who are less encumbered by the need to find some sort of satisfaction in the things of this life. They have the easiest time learning to submit. Intelligence, intellect, ability, these are gifts from God and they take a man in this world very far. But from God's perspective, they're not necessary. This is one of what we might call the great paradoxes of the Christian life. Jesus taught in Matthew 23, verses 8 to 12. But be ye not called rabbi, for one is your master, even Christ, and all ye are brethren. And call no man your father upon the earth, for one is your father, which is in heaven. Neither be ye called masters, for one is your master, even Christ. Notice the paradox in this next statement. But he that is greatest among you shall be your servant. And whosoever shall exalt himself shall be abased, and he that shall humble himself shall be exalted. He'll say a similar thing in Luke 22, verses 25 and 26. He said unto them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and they that exercise authority upon them are called benefactors. But ye shall not be so. But he that is greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he that is chief as he that doth serve. To understand true life, to understand life in God, to find in life lasting satisfaction, we must do it God's way. And God's way stands in direct contrast to the human heart's predisposition, doesn't it? We are predisposed to seek success through power. God says success is through service. We are predisposed to see success through pride. God says success is through humility. We are predisposed to see success through ability. God says success is found through submission. God is bigger than us, and to find true success, we need to understand His way and submit to it. And this is that paradox. That as Solomon looks at life, and he looks at life's seasons, and he sees how life goes... He's going to recognize that in the midst of all of the ups and downs and the things that man pursues and doesn't and his abilities and his inabilities and his capacities and his incapacities, God is in control. So let's dig in. Verse 1 of Ecclesiastes chapter 3, we read this. To everything there is a season and a time to every purpose 
under the heaven. One of the most important things we can learn in this life is that it operates under the province of God. As Solomon speaks about the seasons of life, uh, he talks about them, interestingly enough, as under the heaven. And I'd like you to take note of that, that he says under the heaven here. And most likely this stands in contrast to that phrase that we've seen time and again in the book of Ecclesiastes, under the sun. Right? Ecclesiastes is a book about man under the sun. The idea of being under the sun is in this material world, from a material perspective. When Solomon talks about living life under the sun, he's saying that you live life for what it is apart from an understanding of God or apart from a regard for God. That you live life as it can provide itself to you or as it can present itself to you. Now, when the Bible talks about heaven, it can speak of heaven in any one of three possible contexts here. Uh, the first heaven is what we would call the atmosphere, right? The birds that fly, they fly in the heavens. And in the Hebrew mind, that would have been the first heaven. The second heaven is what we call today outer space. It's where the stars are. It's where the planets are. Um, this is what the Hebrew mind would think of as the second heaven. And then there is a third heaven, and that is the throne room of God, the abiding place of God. Uh, that is a, a place that we don't really understand a whole lot about. The Bible doesn't tell us too much about it, except for the, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven and what God will provide for us there. But heaven as the throne room of God, we don't see it all that often, and we don't know a whole lot about it, except that it is the abiding place of God. And in the scriptures, we find that uh, Referenced in certain places as the third heaven, but more usually, more regularly, we see heaven in the scripture and then we have to infer from context which one is being spoken of. We really don't know exactly which one Solomon is speaking of here. Um, we would probably... And most likely, this is this is where Solomon's going with this. Uh, consider it to be the abiding place of God, the throne room of God, the place from which God rules. In this frame of reference, Solomon is emphasizing a contrast between life under the sun and life under the heaven. Uh, under the sun being a life without God's, uh, with disregard for God's design or disregard for God's purposes. You just live life for what it is. And then in this context, under the heaven would be a life lived from the perspective of recognizing God's design. Now, this is actually the third and final time in the book that we see this phrase, under the heaven. It came up in chapter 1, verse 13. Solomon says that he was going to search out the things done under the heaven. Now, we could comfortably take this this frame of reference, this context, and say, yes, Solomon is saying he's going to search for all the things that are done, and even though he's going to be talking about man under the sun, at the beginning of the book, as he's giving his introduction, he says, oh, by the way, it is under the heaven, it's under God's plan, it's under God's auspices. Because we know that all throughout the book, Solomon, though it sounds fatalistic, Solomon is constantly pointing back to God. However, the second instance of this would give us more pause. In chapter 2, verse 3, Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 3, Solomon says, I sought in mine heart to give myself unto wine, yet acquainting my heart with wisdom and to lay hold on folly, till I might see what was that good for the sons of men, which they should do under the heaven all the days of their life. And this one sounds far more materialistic, right? Solomon says he's giving himself to wine, he's giving himself to folly, he's throwing himself into even that which is wrong in the world, in order that he can understand what brings satisfaction. And so this one seems a little bit more difficult for us to draw out the idea that at that moment in time, at least, Solomon was regarding 
himself is actually being under the heaven, under God's authority. But it is a possibility, right? Because Solomon's writing this after the fact, it is a possibility. So that's one possibility, that when Solomon mentions every purpose under the heaven, he is speaking about the things that man does with regard to God's design or within the the uh, context of God's design. The other possibility is that Solomon is speaking of the first heaven here, the atmosphere, the sky. Now, if he were doing this, or maybe even the second heaven, if he were doing this, then he would simply be kind of repeating himself, that under the heaven and under the sun are synonymous ideas. That when he says under the sun, he's talking about the things that happen on God's green earth, everywhere the sun hits. And when he says under the heaven, he's talking about everything that happens under the sky, which is everything on the earth. And it's possible that, that he could be speaking synonymously here. Uh, I, I like the first interpretation better. I'm more comfortable with that, that there's a contrast, or else I don't know why Solomon would change his perspective like that. But both are possible. Either way, though, Solomon is most certainly stating in this verse, in chapter 3, verse 1, that life has purpose. That life has design. That we're not just a random bunch of cells placed on a random rock in a random universe, but that there is design here. And so Solomon then begins a contrast. As a matter of fact, he he paints 14 contrasts over the next several verses, speaking of the times and the seasons. In verse 2 he says this, A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up that which is planted. There's a time to be born, Solomon says, and there's a time to die. He hits us immediately with the one thing in the moment in which it confronts us that seems like the greatest injustice of all. There's a God in heaven who knows all and who has power over all, but my loved ones still die. As we speak, people are dying. According to the CIA fact book for this year, a person dies every, excuse me, every second, 1.8 people die. So almost two people per second are dying around the world. 108 people die every minute. Many of those deaths, of course, are the elderly, those who have lived their lives to the full, but many others are in war, disease, lack of necessity. It's claimed so many lives. But Solomon tells us that under the purpose of heaven, under God's plan, people are born and people die. That this is not outside of God's control. And he contrasts this, that this contrast is closely paired with the next. As a matter of fact, I would almost go so far as to say that as you read the next verses, verses 2 through 7, that Solomon is writing in somewhat of a couplet form here. In other words, that each verse, as it's been identified and separated, uh, much later, of course, Solomon didn't separate it into verses. Uh, but as it was separated, it was separated recognizing that each one of these these, that these two contrasts are almost couplets. They seem to fit together. Ecclesiastes is a book of Hebrew poetry. It's one of five books of Hebrew poetry. And so it would not necessarily surprise us that there's some sort of rhyme of thought here. That's how Hebrew poetry works. Hebrew poetry did not rhyme in sound. You know, if, if we have poetry that doesn't rhyme, it grates on us because the English language demands it. 
We demand our songs rhyme. We demand our, our poetry rhymes. But Hebrew songs and poetry demanded no such thing. They did not rhyme in sound. They rhymed in thought, in pattern of meaning. And so uh, it's quite possible that this is intended, that these, these contrasts are intended to kind of be couplets. So then he says, he says there's a time to be born and a time to die. There's a time to plant and a time to pluck up that which is planted. Obviously, there's a literal element to this, right? We live out here where farms are quite prevalent. There's a planting season and there's a reaping season. Now, you can decide that you don't want planting season to be planting season and reaping season to be reaping season. So you can plant when it's reaping season and try to reap when it's planting season. But if you try to plant during reaping season and reap during planting season, you're not reaping anything. It doesn't work that way. Because God has designed the world a certain way. And you have to conform yourself to the design of God's plan, of God's design, if you're going to reap the results. Right? Beyond just the literal element, however, Solomon has likely paired this with the concept of death very deliberately. That just as it's man's privilege to understand that there's a time to sow and a time to reap, and you can't do anything about that. So too, there's a time to live and there's a time to die. There's a time to be born. There's a time to die. And that's in God's hand. Verse three, he says, there's a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up. It's important in this context to understand the difference between the two two Hebrew words, one meaning to kill and the other meaning to murder. The word we find in this context, harag, means to kill in the general sense. Uh, this is a co- in contrast with, say, what we might find in the Ten Commandments, where in the Ten Commandments we read in our King James Version, thou shalt not kill. But it's not the word harag, it's the word ratzah, which literally means to murder, to take one's, to, to take a life unjustifiably. A big difference there. The sixth commandment indeed does not outlaw any taking of human life. The sixth commandment outlaws the taking of human life unlawfully. Without moral justification under God. To take the life of another in any context is to take the life of a being whom, in whom resides the image of God. And so to take the life of another human being is blasphemy against God of the highest order unless God has sanctioned it. And in God's economy, there is one broad context within which the taking of human life is warranted. And that is the context of human government for the punish of evildoers. Romans chapter 13. God has ordained human government to have the authority to take the lives of evildoers. And so in that context, it is justifiable. Now, we could get into the nuances of others, but that's the one broad context, right? Solomon tells us then that there is a time to kill. And this is true. There is. There's a time to kill. And then there is also a time to heal. Once again, in sort of couplet fashion, we see a similar idea in the next context, right? That there's a time to break down and a time to build up. The literal sense, we understand this to be true. There's a time where things need to be broken down. There's a time where a building is too old and the land and the property that the building is on is important, so you tear down the building so you can put up something new. There's a time where things need to be torn down. There's a time where old structures, old ideas, old traditions, old relationships, they need to be broken down to make way for something new. Likewise, there are times when progress demands building up either improving the existing or starting afresh and anew. New ideas, new buildings, new thoughts, new relationships. 
if we take this once again in couplet form with the idea of killing and healing, we might understand Solomon to be thinking on somewhat of a national level here. Remember, he was a king. He was leading a nation. If he was thinking on a national level here, there's a time to mete out justice, capital punishment. There's a time to heal. There's a time to allow for reparations. There's a time to break things down in a nation. There's a time to build things up. Perhaps he was thinking of nations in a broader sense, that nations rise and nations fall. That in the cycle of history, we find that no empire has ever held sway indefinitely. That in the cycle of history, we found that when man uh, is, that, that tyrants do not persist indefinitely, that tyranny does not persist indefinitely. Likewise, we find that freedom has never persisted indefinitely. That it's all cyclical. Verse 4. He says there's a time to weep. And a time to laugh, a time to mourn, and a time to dance. We speak speak of death and life. We speak of killing and healing. We speak of tearing down and building up. There is a time thus to be sad. Connected to the concepts of both weeping and mourning. Again, we see this kind of couplet format. There's a time to weep. There's a time to mourn. There's a time to be sad. There are times of life defined by sorrow. You know, sorrow is a part of life. Be it through illness, be it through death, be it through the tearing down of those things which were once held dear. As we think of tearing down, you know, there's a time where, where relationships have to change, right? Where relationships, maybe certain relationships have to end. There's a time to tear those things down, and that's not always a fun thing. There's a time where things change. Every parent dreads of the day where their kids have to leave the home because it's a change, and we don't like change. But things have to change, right? It's the way life is. And sometimes those changes aren't going to always be happy. Sometimes they are. Oftentimes they are. Oftentimes they aren't. And there's a time to weep. And there's a time to mourn. It's not, it's not outside of God's design to weep and mourn. But there's also a time to be happy. There's a time to laugh. There's a time to dance. Connected to both. The, both these concepts are connected to joy. Are connected to delight. Under the sun. Under God, we will have times of sorrow. And we will have times of happiness. Both are a part of life. Both pay a part in God's plan. And remember, we're talking about times and seasons. Which means in the season of your sorrow, remember it's just a season. And that seasons change. And in the times of your joy and delight, remember it's a season. That shouldn't make you morbid and pessimistic, but it should give, remind you that, that things can change. Verses 5 and 6, we'll put these together. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to get and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. The next contrast is akin to another modern idiom that we have. One man's trash is another man's treasure. Right? In one corner of the world, men are pouring untold resources into clearing rocks away. And in another part of the world, men are pouring untold resources into gathering enough rocks to do what they want to do with them. Both needs and desires exist in the world simultaneously. There's no one size fits all. 
And indeed, there are times when you don't need a resource and then later you realize you do. Have you ever done that? You've thrown something away? It's inevitably, right? Three weeks later, ah, I just threw that away and now I need it. I hadn't used it in 10 years, right? And now I need it. Solomon also speaks of a time to embrace and a time to refrain in embracing. Taken in this couplet. Isn't this interesting? He's talking about casting away stones, gathering them. And then he talks about getting and losing, keeping and casting away. And then this idea of embracing or not embracing. There's a time to accept and there's a time to reject. There's a time where the, in the exact same circumstance, it's entirely appropriate to say yes. And then that same circumstance comes at a different time and to say no. And both can be appropriate. Right? It can be appropriate to say yes to something today and say no to it tomorrow, and both are valid in their context. And this comes down to circumstance at any given point in time. And why? Well, because times change. Things change. Seasons change. Contexts change. Needs change. And just because I don't need something today doesn't mean I won't need it tomorrow. And just because I need something today does not mean I will need it tomorrow. The same idea continues into verse 6. A time to get and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away. And we as believers can be really bad at this because we hold to an unchanging book. And because of that, our, our default is don't change. Right? And yet, while the book will never change and we ought never, ever, ever change in our loyalty, our understanding of the book, the context in which we live changes, right? The world in which we are serving Christ today is very different from the world in which our parents did, or their parents did. And while we must never change the unchanging truths of God's word and never compromise on them, we dare not, we we dare be careful not to fight their battles at the expense of our own. We need to be careful with that, right? And that's the difference. That's the idea. Times and seasons, things change. Verse 7. There's a time to rend and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. Times to tear things and times to sow things. Of course, in Hebrew culture, the time to rend, at least most prominently, would be the time of mourning, right? As they would rend their clothes and sit in sackcloth and ashes. There are times where things need to be torn apart and times where things need to be sewn together. Metaphorically, we could speak of, again, relationships. We could speak of churches. We could speak of nations. We could speak of societies. We could speak of traditions. And then he says, there's a time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to speak up, a time to keep one mouth shut. We have all experienced these troubles, right? When you've you've spoken and you shouldn't have, or you didn't speak up and you should have. Now, none of this is outside of what we can observe on any given day, right? This is, this is just standard stuff. This is standard human wisdom. You go to anybody in the world and you say there's a time to speak and there's a time to be quiet and they're going to say, yeah, that's true. You're going to say there's a time to tear down and a time to build up and they're going to say, yep, that makes absolute sense. That's the stuff we see around us all the time. This is, this is validated by life. But then we need to take it one step farther. And we need to see in all of it, God, the providence of God. Verse 8, he says, a time to love and a time to hate, a time of war and a time of peace. This is our final two contrasts. 
There are times and circumstances to place one's loyalty and affections upon someone or something else. Likewise, there are times to refuse to place one's loyalty and affection. The word hate in the Bible does not always mean uh, emotional anger toward or emotional an emotional response. When we think of hatred, we think of an emotional loathing towards something. But we also use the word more flippantly, right? I could go home and say, ah, I hate cooked broccoli. And it's not that when I see cooked broccoli, uh, in me wells up an emotional Loathing, it's just not something I want to eat, right? And, and so we use this word a bit, uh, in, in a bit of a different sense as well. When the Bible speaks of hate, the word hate means to place lower in value or favor or to reject. So it doesn't even necessarily mean that you dislike the thing. It just means that you are placing it lower in value or favor than something else. So when the Bible says, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated, it's not that God emotionally loathed Esau, it's that he placed Esau in lower value, lower favor, lower honor than his brother. And that's the idea of hatred. And so here, there's a time to love and a time to hate. It does not mean that there is a time where you should exercise intense emotional loathing towards People. Now, we could say that, that in this context, certainly we can put sin in that category of something that we would actually hate as God hates. But it does not stand, this, where I'm going with this is that this statement should not and must not and does not stand in contrast to God's call for us to love one another, to love our neighbor as ourselves. We see that God has called us to love what he loves and hate what he hates. And you know, God loves sinners. God hates sin, and so should we, but God loves sinners. God loves righteousness. God hates evil, and so should we. God loves truth. God hates lies, and so should we. He then says that there's a time of war and a time of peace. Nations war. This is a part of the fallen world in which we live, and don't think that those wars are outside of God's ability to Understand, control, direct. Don't think they're outside of God's purposes. Not all wars are unjust. Sometimes a nation must go to war to protect itself. And it's God-given right to sovereign rule as God has ordained two governments. And you know, some men just want to see the world burn. And others need to resist. Even the horrors of war rest under God's purposes. And with this, Solomon's contrasts are over. And now he asks a very familiar question in verse 9. He's asked it already a couple of times. What profit hath he that worketh in that wherein he laboreth? A couple of weeks ago, Solomon considered the reality that the wise man dies just as the fool, right? That whether or not you're wise or foolish, whether or not you're successful or not in this life, you're going to die. You're going to be put in the same ground and it's going to be the same thing. And in many cases, even wisdom does not necessarily give man a leg up, give man more years. I've often wondered, as I've sat across from men and women at the jail at this, uh, when I'm going through health difficulties or whatever it might be, and I look at them, and uh, some of these people in the jail, they're 50 or 60 years old, and they have lived lives. They have pumped illicit drugs and alcohol into their body for years, and they have uh, been homeless and lived on the streets, and their bodies have been abused, and yet somehow they're still functioning. <laughs> but then that 20-year-old Christian who loves the Lord and who has done right, is on his deathbed. And you say, where's the justice? How is that that right? That's kind of the fatalism that Solomon is saying here. Look, things come, things go, it's happening, it's not happening, there's a time for this, there's a time for that. Even the same action can be appropriate in one circumstance and not in another circumstance. So what profit is there in any of it? 
Is life truly worth it? The wise, how does he die? He dies as the fool. They all die. And a lot of times the fool can live just as long or longer than the wise. That the evil dictator who's destroyed millions of his own people can live into his 60s and 70s. And good man can die young. No matter how hard I work at righteousness... I'm going to have times of sorrow. I'm going to have times of pain. I'm going to have seasons of loss. The fact that I'm a righteous man does not mean that I will not die. It does not mean that my children won't die. It does not mean that I won't have tough circumstances. It does not mean pain won't come, illness won't come, loss won't come. So then what's the point of doing anything other than just doing what I want? And Solomon is teaching us here that all life unfolds under the appointment of God. Birth, death, planting, reaping, joy, sorrow, acquisition, loss, speaking up, being silent, war and peace. And since everything has a time from God, he says, what good is my labor? And he answers his own question in verses 10 and 11. He says, I have seen the travail which God hath given to the sons of men to be exercised in it. He hath made everything beautiful in his time. Also, he has set the world in their heart so that no man can find out the work that God maketh from the beginning to the end. Listen. A man of understanding recognizes that everything on the list that we have explored, verses 2 through 8, when realized in its proper season, can be a part, not just of an indifferent God's design, not just of the great clockwinder who wound it up and let it go and let come what may, that everything that comes in life, the sorrow and the joy, the pain, the loss, the, the, the praise and the delight, it is all in God's season a part of God's loving plan. Take special note of what Solomon is saying here, lest you be confused. He did not say that every instance of good or bad, as considered in verses 2 through 8, is inherently part of God's beauty. Okay? It's not inherently a part of God's beauty when nations war, or when evil comes, or when men do wicked things. That's not a part of God's beauty. But when those things happen in God's time, He can bring from them beauty. He has made all things beautiful in His time. A man can choose a life of rebellion as Solomon explored in chapter 2 and his efforts will come to naught. But to the man who understands that God has a plan, to the man that recognizes that life is subservient to the purposes of God, he will come to realize that even in the difficulties of life, these things can work out to be beautiful. And so he can trust. And so even in the midst of the hard times, he can find lasting satisfaction in the reality that he is aligned with God. So He's right. And God can make it right. Now, we can't always understand this, right? Because as humans, we're in the middle of it. But we can trust it. We often say spiritual hindsight is twenty twenty. When we're in the valley, stricken by sorrow and fear and fatigue, we can't see God's plan. Years ago, my wife and I were hiking in the Appalachian uh, Mountains in Georgia and, and the Carolinas. And it was my first real experience hiking in the Appalachians. We were on the Appalachian Trail. And the Appalachian Trail is very different from how I used to hike out in Colorado, where I was born and where I grew up. In Colorado, you had trees, but you didn't have a lot of ground 
uh, cover, a lot of foliage on the ground. And so even when you were hiking through the trees, you could see just about everything. And then you go above tree line and there's nothing to hinder you from seeing as far as your eyes can possibly see. It's a little bit different in Georgia. It's a little bit different in the Carolinas. You're hiking and you can't see anything. There are trees on, on both sides, but not just trees. There are vines and there's, you, you can't see. You can see a few feet into the woods and then that's about it. And so you're hiking and you're looking up because Appalachian Trail, I don't know. They don't, they don't believe in switchbacks on the AT. They just straight up, right? And so there, you're going straight up this mountain and you're seeing a little bit of a crest. And of course you have blisters and you're tired and you can't wait to get to that top. Because there's the top. And then you get to that top and you realize that's not the top. There's a whole other one. And you don't know how many of those there are. There could be another and another and another and another. And you don't know how high you're going to go. Because you can't see. And you can get discouraged because when you're in the middle of it, you just don't see what's going on. And that's common. And that's normal. Because we're in, when we're in the middle of trials and we're in the middle of circumstances, we don't have perspective because we're in the thick of it. We're in the valley. And you don't really have perspective until you get out and you look down on what you have gone through. But you know, fortunately... Though I had no ability to look around at me and gain that perspective, you know what I did have? I had a map. And I can follow my route on that map. And even if I can't see my progress, because there's nothing but the same green all around me all the time, I can trace my progress in the map. Right? If I have a GPS, I can actually see the little breadcrumbs. As it follows me along. And I can say, look, we've made progress. Yes, it's the same thing we saw. You know, we're looking at the same thing we were looking at two hours ago, which is just a bunch of green. But I know I've made progress because I can look at the map. We've been given a map. This map charts our progress. So that even in the times where circumstances around us are that we have no idea what's going on. We can't understand. We don't see. We don't know God's plan. We don't know God's purposes. We are in the valley and we can't, we can't even gauge our progress. We don't know if we're near the beginning or near the end of whatever trial we're going through. We don't know if it's going to end. All of those things. Uh, here's what we can do. We can open up and say, he has made everything beautiful in his time to everything there is a season My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. For I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. And we can say, okay, I don't know where I am and I don't know where I'm going, but I know I'm making progress. In the Lord. And I know that his times and his seasons are in my hand. And that he hath made all things. He hath made everything beautiful in his time. It will be beautiful. I won't, I don't know how yet. I can't understand that, but it will be because that's what God does. That's why Paul could so confidently say in Romans eight twenty eight, we know that all things work together for good to them that love God and to them that are the called according to his purpose. When you're love, when you love God and you're doing things his way, you can trust him to work it out, make all things beautiful in his time. Even the mourning, even the sorrow, even the rending, even the times of silence, even the times to break down, even the times to, not, to, to refrain from embracing, even the times of casting away, 
He can make them beautiful in His time. And this is where true life is found. It is not found only in the times of laughter and of sowing and of reaping and of mending. It can be found in all of life. Lasting satisfaction in the midst of all circumstances because we can trust that God has made all things beautiful in His time. So don't be afraid. As, as this verse says, that God has set the world in your heart. Do you know what he's saying there? That God has set the world in your heart? That means that God has placed in your heart a desire for good. A desire for life. A desire for happiness. A desire for joy. A desire to build. A desire to succeed. Don't be afraid of that. Don't be afraid of the positive things in the Lord just because the bad times could come. Don't be frozen in horror or terror in the bad times just because you can't see the way out. See, the thing about life is you don't get the good without the bad. You can't have the joys of birth without the realities of death, right? You can't have the delights of relationships without the dangers and vulnerability of conflict. You can't have the good parts of marriage without the inevitable clashes, right? It's a part of it. It's a part of it. You can't make yourself vulnerable to someone by loving them without also making yourself vulnerable to them and they could hurt you with that. The people that are closest to you in life, you are most emotionally vulnerable to. They are the people that will bring you more joy than anyone else in your life. Your your husband, your wife, your children, your parents, your best friend, your pastor, those in church. They, They are the ones that are closest to you. And so as you get closer to them, you make yourself more vulnerable to them. And there's more potential for damage. Emotional damage. But you can't have the joys of love without the threat or the danger, the vulnerability of love. It doesn't work. You can't have the privileges of gain without accepting some potential for loss, right? You can't have the opportunities of joy without the opportunities for sorrow. And the world is in our hearts. We crave the elements of this life which God has genuinely given us to enjoy. And there is worth in them, even on the bad days. And here's why. Because just as much as birth is given to man by God, so too is death. Just as much as joy is given to man by God, so too is sorrow. In that time of sorrow, can you trust that God knows? And that it's there for a reason? In other words, not just that God knows that you're in sorrow, but that God gave it to you as a part of life? And if God's purposes in this fallen world include the sorrows and the rending and the loss, then He can indeed make those things beautiful as well. But only as man comes to terms with all of this being a true gift from the living God. Life will remain a mystery of frustration and grief until man comes to believe that the God who made him and the things which he enjoys have purpose in it all. So that even in the hard times, we know from our map that there is a destination, that we're making progress, that we're on the right path, and that when we get there, it will be beautiful. So we see that God has made even the burdens, the sorrows, the distresses beautiful in His time. 
The next natural question then, if God wants to make it all beautiful, then why have the burdens and the sorrows and the worries and the cares and the frustrations at all? If God can give these gifts, and if God works in all of these purposes, then why any suffering at all? Verses 12 to 14. Solomon writes, I know that there is no good in them but for a man to rejoice and to do good in this life, in his life. And also that every man should eat and drink and enjoy the good of all his labor. It is a gift from God. I know that whatsoever God doeth, it shall be forever. Nothing can be put to it, nor anything taken from it. And God doeth it, that men should fear before him. There is nothing good just under the sun. That's what Solomon is saying here. Under the sun, just under the sun, if you take God out of the equation, there's really nothing good. Because the good things are temporary and worthless, and the bad things are bad. Right? That's what Solomon said last week. He said, I hated life. I hated life because all of the good things I've enjoyed, all of the money I've got and the wives I've got and the things I've done and the building projects I've done, it's all useless. It's empty. It's going nowhere, so I hate it. He says, I know that there's no good in them implicitly. Just as, as we would say within me, that is within my heart, is no good thing, right? There's no good thing, but we can be made to do good in Christ. The only good thing in anything is that man might rejoice in it. That's the only thing that this life has to offer is the, the joys that come from the moment that we're in something. And the only way a man can truly rejoice in these things, in anything, the only way he can find any true lasting satisfaction is when he does it in the Lord. And the point is this. Sin has devastated this world. Satan is busy about the work of resisting God in this world. But you know what? Satan has failed. Even the burdens, even the sorrows, even the pain, even those things that were introduced by man's sinfulness, brought on by man's rebellion at the behest of Satan's temptations, do not threaten God's purposes. Nor do they threaten your ability to find lasting satisfaction in life through Christ. And so it all points to one end. Why, why allow for suffering? That last phrase. That men should fear before him. Suffering teaches men how to fear God. Before man can find lasting satisfaction within the scope of a life lived out under the purposes of Almighty God, he must first understand his place in this creation. He must recognize that God is higher. He must understand that God's ways are higher. He must reconcile his existence with the realities that God is above all. And so Paul would write in Romans 9.16, So then it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. The only one who will find lasting satisfaction is the one who fears God, who puts God's will above his own. The one who fears God is the one who sees God's pleasure as higher than any personal ideal. And the one who fears God wants nothing more than to know the living God intimately. And he'll find in all of that Lasting satisfaction in this life. So it is that we come back to this paradox. If you truly want to live life, if you truly want lasting satisfaction, the key is not holding on to that which this world offers with all of your heart and hanging on for dear life in the midst of the good and the bad. The key is actually letting go and finding your delight in God apart from circumstances. And then through God, you'll find delight in that which the world has to offer because he has set the world in your heart. He has given you that desire for good things, but he'll give it to you in his way. And that's where you'll find the satisfaction.
So we finish with verse 15 uh, with our teaching today and then we'll apply. He says, that which has been is now and that which is to be hath already been and God requireth that which is past. Why fear God? Remember, that's what he just said. He said that man may learn to fear God. Why? Because you will come and go. Pleasures come and go. But God isn't going anywhere. God's purposes aren't changing because of you, because of any nation, because of any circumstance. God's plans are unchangeable. God's purposes are written in the heavens. Sin can't thwart them. The devil can't change them. We're not going to change them. Nations aren't going to alter them. God's design will not change with you. You would not be the first person on earth to find lasting satisfaction apart from the fear of God. You won't be that one. You won't be that one that says, hey, I'm going to rebel against God and I'm going to find in it everything that I hoped. You will not be the first person on earth to circumvent God's design in any avenue of life. You will not be the first one to prove God wrong that you can be genuinely happy apart from Him. You're not going to be the first one. People have come, people have gone, people have tried. They've tried again and again and again. They've tried through every circumstance and it's never happened. That's what Solomon's saying. It's never happened. It's never going to happen. God is bigger than that. The struggles of this life are here to remind us just how much we need God. And that He can make all things beautiful in His time. So let's apply this morning. Point number one is we apply. We've understood it's important to understand before we apply. If we have application without understanding, then we have no foundation for that application. If we have understanding without application, then we have knowledge without direction. We need both understanding and then we need to take it and apply it to our lives. So, point number one. All things are for a season. Take note. We begin with a call to identify God's purpose and design in all of this. Let us put this simply. Human. Human wisdom calls for us to understand what season we find ourselves in and to deal with it, right? Human wisdom can pinpoint all of the things in verses 2 through 8. It can pinpoint the time to be quiet and the time to speak, the time to build and the time to tear down. Human wisdom can do that. Human wisdom can identify that. But divine wisdom calls us to take the next step, not just to understand what season we find ourselves in and to deal with it, but then to understand that the seasons of our life have purpose and to align with it. That even in the hard times, God is doing something. That He has made all things beautiful in this time. That His purpose in allowing the seasons of life to come and to go and to continue is that you might learn to fear Him. So that when you stand face to face with the life that God has asked you to live, with all of its ups and its downs, with all of its goods and its bads, with all of your strengths and with all of your weaknesses, what comes to mind is not, God, why am I going through this circumstance? Or God, why do you hate me so much? But rather, Isaiah 55, 8, 9, that my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. But, excuse me, for as the heavens are higher than the earth... So are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. So that when you're going through the trials, what comes to mind is God's way is higher and God is in control. So that you could say, like with Paul in 2 Corinthians 12.10, for when I am weak, then am I strong. So that you could say with him in Philippians 4.11, as I mentioned before, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. 
the paradox of God's design. The greatest among you will be servant. When I am weak, then I am strong. Contentment, even in suffering. These are things that God has designed if we will identify them and align with them. It makes no sense from a material perspective to, to find joy in the midst of suffering, to find peace in the midst of sorrow. It only comes to those who fear God. And unto those who fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings. Did not Malachi promise that in Malachi chapter 4? Indeed, the key to lasting satisfaction is not hidden nor is it elusive, but it demands that Christ be preeminent in your life. Point number two. All things are for a season, so take care. Our second of three points of application focuses more on the practical essence of Solomon's teaching. To everything there is a season, but we as humans are resistant to change. Perhaps another human idiom that we could use, better the devil you know, right? Better the circumstance within which, with which you're in, which may not be perfect, but at least you've got a handle on it, than the unknowns of tomorrow. Humans have a propensity to choose that which is inferior but comfortable to that which is superior and uncomfortable. And God is in the business of stretching people, testing people, refining people. And this will mean change. The best way to illustrate this might be with the seasons themselves. We all likely have a favorite season. That's an okay thing, of course. But just because there's a certain season of the year that we like best does not mean that we live our entire lives in that season, right? We don't shut down in the winter just because we like summer best. And so summer's great and we love summer and then in the winter we keep on our shorts and our t-shirt and we demand that summer remains and we're not going to live our lives in the winter and we're going to just hibernate or hide or whatever it might be because we are going to stay in the season that we love and we will not give it up even though it's gone. And so we're useless in the winter because we're so stuck on the summer. And I can't go outside because I won't take off the shorts and the t-shirt because I demand that it be summer even though it's too cold. So I'm useless. Summer will come. Wasting winter won't make summer come any faster. And summer has its own virtue. I mean, winter has its own virtues, doesn't it? Jesus told us in John 15, verses 1 and 2, I am the true vine and my father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that beareth fruit Beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. See, God is a husbandman. And he's going to prune his vines. And he's going to prune them back so that they can grow back more lush and full the next time. But to resist the purging because you like yourself as you are, or you like circumstances as they are, is to resist your own spiritual success. So take care because as the seasons of life change, as you go from the season of contentment to the season of turmoil, from the season of plenty to the season of lack, from the season of rest to the season of work, we can look back at the previous days and say those were better times rather than seeing them as simply different times. And we look back and we say, yeah, how much better it was when we had this and when we were that. But wait a minute. See, if God has made all things beautiful in its time, then really I can stand quite confidently and say they weren't better times. God hasn't decided to just tear your life to shreds. He's just giving you different circumstances for His purposes. 
And if we fail to see that, if we, if we are so stuck on the better times of the past that we are neglecting the times of the current, then we might just be missing out on the beauty of this season because you're so busy wishing for what once was, which is no longer God's best for you. May I say that again? You're so busy thinking and wondering and wishing about what once was that you're missing out on what is, which is now what is God's best for you. See, what was is no longer God's best for you. If it was, then he'd still have you there, right? Or perhaps, young people, you're just the opposite. You find yourself in a season of life where it's yours to be taken care of by your parents while you are learning and growing. It's yours to be under their protection and under their care. And you've come to resent this season in your life because you want freedom and you don't like the responsibilities that have been put upon you and you don't like that you have to do what you're told and you don't like that that you don't get to do what you want when you want to do it and you don't have the friends that maybe you'd want to have or you're not in the situation that you would naturally want to be. But instead of living joyfully within the season that God has given you, you spend your time longing for a season which may or may not be ahead of you. And you're so busy with what you think you want tomorrow that you have forgotten to live live in what God has provided for you today. You see, the things of tomorrow are not God's best for you today. If they were God's best for you today, you'd have them today. But you don't have them today because they're not God's best for you to today. They might be God's best for you to, for tomorrow, but they're not for today. Or perhaps you're an adult. And you're in this realm also. You're in a season where your job is not what you would want it to be. Your health is not what you'd want it to be. Your church is not what you'd want it to be. And you're so focused upon moving beyond this season of life into the next season of life that you've missed the gifts that God has intended in this season. So focused on tomorrow that you're forgetting to live today. Our Lord once told us this, did he not? Matthew 6.34, Take therefore no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. Can we trust God for the next season enough to live confidently and joyfully in the season that God has given us now? You cannot be happier than when you are right where God wants you to be. And if this season of life in which He has chosen you is... Yours for this time? Do you have faith to live within it with joy? Now, of course, all of this assumes that you've been doing to some degree or another God's will. If not, then that season is of your making and you need to realign. Or perhaps you're resistant to enter a new season. Maybe it's that relationship which has gone on for far too long, but you've been afraid to cut it off because you fear change. You don't want to be alone. Maybe it's that bad or sinful habit which you know needs to go, but is just so comfortable. Maybe it's that move that you need to make, that direction that the Lord has been pointing you, but you won't make it, not because you don't know that He wants it, but because you're uncomfortable with that new season. You're comfortable in the season of life where you find yourself and you don't really want the unknowns of change. Do you have enough faith to recognize that as the seasons of life change, you cannot be in a better place than where God wants you to be? Third and final point. All things are for a season. So first take note, second take care, third and finally take heart. For some, the season of life in which you find yourself is not your ideal. It's not what you want. It's not what you imagined. You're not happy uh, in, in the physical circumstances. It's a hard time. It's, it's difficult. Now you're trying to live in the joy of the Lord. You're taking care. You're, you're understanding this is the season of life. But you can also take heart with the knowledge that it is a season. 
And by making this point, I'm perhaps slightly undercutting the urgency of my previous point. I tell you to take care that you're living by faith and living in the season of your life. And then I suggest that you should find hope that the season may end. And that there's something else in the future. And indeed, you can hope for better things. So maybe I'm undercutting my point a little bit, but I think I can do it confidently because it's not unfounded in Scripture. It is not unreasonable for us to fulfill every obligation of the current season of our lives and joy in the current season of our lives while also looking forward to another season. In fact, Paul told Titus, in Titus chapter 2, verse 11 through 13, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared unto all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Why? Looking for that blessed hope and glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, there's an entire book of our Bible, 1 Thessalonians, that was written where Paul's saying, yeah, you're suffering right now. It's bad right now. But remember, there's coming a time when it'll all be gone. Where Christ will come, He'll wipe the tears away from your eyes, and you'll be in the glory of your Lord. And those who have already died are there, and they're going to come back, and you're going to see them again too. A whole book of the Bible devoted to, yes, you're in these circumstances, joy in the Lord in these circumstances, take them for what they are, it's your season of life, but don't feel ashamed to look ahead and say, ah, there's better times in the future. The times when I'll be with my Lord. The times when the pain will be gone. Where the suffering will be gone. Where the trials will be gone. Where I can rest with my Lord. Peter would say a similar thing in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6 and 7. Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, there's our word, if need be, ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Can you believe that in the midst of a trial, in the midst of the difficult times, in the midst of the things which are not fun, though it be tried with fire, though you're going through the, the trials of life and they hurt and they're unpleasant, can you trust that on the if you do things right, that if you stick with the Lord, that on the day of the glorious appearing of your Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, you will be able to fa- be found unto His praise and honor? Where there will be an added element of joy because you went through that trial as the Lord asked you to. And so we take heart. Knowing that in the hard times, no no season lasts forever. And the worst that any season can present to us is the prospect of our eternity with the Lord. Those are our three primary points. I do want to give you one more. But it's the point you've heard again and again and again, and you'll hear it every week. Never forget man can find lasting satisfaction. I've told you every week this is going to be our last point, And every week I'm going to use the Bible verse to support it. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Paul writes this. Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforteth us in all our tribulation that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves have been comforted. Lasting satisfaction, not in what life gives you, but in what God has given you in this life. What if the season of life you are in, what if the season of life under which you are suffering, under the purposes of a good and loving God, are working in you unto the salvation of a soul? From the pit of a sinner's hell. 
What if through your trial someone might see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven unto salvation? What if this season of life under which you suffer under the hand of an all-knowing and good God is preparing you for a ministry beyond your wildest imaginations, impacting millions for the truth of the gospel? What if God can't get you there to do His work until He's put you through this first? You don't know. You can't know. You're not supposed to know. Ours is not to know. Ours is to trust. Follow the map. We're not blind. But we don't know the timetable. To find satisfaction, not in we want. Not in what we want, excuse me. But in what God has given us. To everything there is a season. And a time to every purpose under heaven. He hath made everything beautiful in His time. Let's pray. Lord, thank You for God's people and their attention this morning. I pray for those who are going through whatever season of life it might be and the Holy Spirit is touching their heart with the truths of God's Word. Some of us are in seasons of joy. Others are in seasons of sorrow. Some of us are in seasons of rest. Others are in seasons of labor. Some of us are in seasons of ease. Others are in seasons of suffering. I pray, Father, not that you would take them out or put them into a season, but I pray that in the midst of our seasons, you would grant us the perspective to rejoice in the Lord. And again, I say rejoice. Give us patience. Give us perspective to do what is right. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.